Go ahead and please turn in in your Bibles. So if you brought yours or whether you're getting one that's passed out to you, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John in the New Testament. The first letter of John, which uh, if you're using a Bible from this room, you'll find that on page 877. Page 877. So 1 John chapter 1. And while you're, while you're getting those and while you're turning there, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to pray for us real quick. Father, we pray as we look at your word that you'll turn the light on for us, that you'll uh, illuminate your word so that we can see you in it and see uh, why these things matter for us now and forever. We thank you that we can do this tonight and celebrate, uh, celebrate you and worship you. We pray we'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> I want to talk to you uh, about a familiar scene that you have probably either seen in movies or maybe you've read the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And I've used this as an illustration before, but I think it's, I think it's appropriate. Um, when the young girl Lucy first enters into this magical land of Narnia, the first creature she meets is this fawn whose name is Mr. Tumnus. And, and Lucy notices in Narnia that there's snow all around her. It's falling, it's covered the land. And Tumnus says to her that it's because the, the witch has made it in Narnia so that it is always winter and never Christmas. And, and so you hear that a few different times. So as, as Tumnus says, and then Lucy says the same thing to her uh, siblings and, and Lucy's response to this, you know, she says, how awful uh, of a thought that is. And, and I agree with her. Now, there's, if you fast forward in the story, uh, there's this scene where the children are on the run. Uh, they're looking for their brother, and they're on the run from this sleigh, and they think the witch is uh, chasing them. And it turns out it's actually not the witch in the sleigh. It's Father Christmas. Saint Nicholas, Santa Claus, and um, and so they they uh, they meet Santa, and he says this. He says, "I've come at last. She, the witch, has kept me out for a long time, but I've got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening." And then he goes on, distributes presents to the children, and then right before he departs, we read. Uh, that then he cried out, Merry Christmas, long live the true king. And he cracked his whip, and he and the reindeer and the sledge and all were out of sight before anyone had realized that they had started. And just the appearance of Father Christmas and the announcement that Aslan, the true king, is on the move, gives these children hope as they're going through this land where it's always winter and never Christmas. Now, thankfully, we aren't living in perpetual winter here. That would be dreadful. But Scripture does speak of the world having this condition of darkness. And we've talked about that for a few weeks, haven't we? Um, just like the Narnians needed to have this hope that they would be delivered from this eternal winter, we need hope that we're going to be delivered from this darkness. And that's what Scripture gives us. So, We've called this study Christmas Lights, thinking about this biblical theme of light versus darkness. And what I want to do tonight is to look to the future, to think about the time 
when final judgment comes and God ushers in an age of eternal light. So, to do this, we're going to look at three stages of history, and we're actually going to start with the present and then work our way into the future. So, stage one. We've got these in your notes. I encourage you to maybe fill in some blanks as we go. Here's the first stage. Um, It's this. It's the current struggle between darkness and light. We've touched on this some in weeks past, but right now there's a current struggle that you and I are in between darkness and light. There are three realities about this current struggle. Uh, let's read together, starting in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, and we're going to see these realities, all right? John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Okay, here's the first reality. You can write this in. God is light. God is light. And there is no darkness in him. So everywhere in the world we look, what do we see? Darkness. Except when we look at the nature and character of God. Because He is light. He's pure. He is holy. He's unlike anything or anyone else. He's unstained by sin. He is unimaginably glorious. And He wants His people to reflect His glory and His holiness to others. And here's how John says we can do this. And we read this in verses 6 and 7. Um... God's people walk in the light. This is the next point. God's people walk in the light and not in the darkness by loving fellow believers and not hating them. Loving fellow believers and not hating them. So do you want to walk in the light and not in the darkness? The answer is you can do that by being a Christian who loves other Christians and not hating them. Show love to your fellow church members. Look, look, look down at uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Uh, starting in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So you can say... I'm a child of light, but then if you don't love fellow believers, John says, you're a liar. You're really walking in darkness. Now, let me give you a very practical way that you can, um, can love fellow believers, okay? If you're in town in a couple of weeks, come on this retreat with us. Some of you I know are hesitant. You're like, I might sign up. I don't know, okay? You can, you can only love people if you're around them. So when, we're, when we go together in this retreat and you say, hey, I want to be with you and show love to you, you are, you are practicing walking together in light, okay? You will, you will show your love for me and for other people if you say, yes, I want to be there with, with you, okay? So there's, there's forms in the back. Some of you have them in your car and in your Bibles from weeks past, okay? Fill them out and turn them in. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, we will walk in the light if we love one another. Now, 
Here's some great news. Look at, look at chapter 2 and verse 7. Um, let's, look at, let's look actually at verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. John says, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The note there is, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. How do we know the true light is already shining? Who or what is the true light? Jesus. We saw this last week, right? Jesus is the light of the world. John says it's already shining. And one day it will outlast the darkness. The darkness is passing away. How long does the light shine? Forever. It never passes away. He will outlast the darkness. Those are the realities for our current struggle with darkness. We, we know that God is light. We know He calls us to walk in light and not in darkness by loving each other. And we know that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So that's, that's the current stage. That's the current struggle between light and darkness. Here's the second stage. There will be a future showdown between light and darkness. At the end of the age... God will step in, and He will oppose and defeat darkness forever. So turn to the very last book of the Bible, and we're going to see how this happens. God will step in, and He will oppose darkness forever. He will pour out His judgment, and basically He will unmake everything that He has made. Remember in Genesis, uh, God creates the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, we see Him unmaking everything before making all things new. So let's, let's ask some questions here about how that's going to happen in the future. So here's the first question. How will God pour out judgment onto his enemies? How will God pour out judgment onto his enemies? You could ask it this way. How will God put an end to the darkness? Here's, here's what it looks like. Uh, let's start in Revelation chapter 8. And in verse 6, this is what we read. And this is, by the way, this is John. This is the same writer. Revelation 8, 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck. And a third of the moon and a third of the stars. So that, so that a third of their light might be darkened. And a third of the day might be kept from shining. Likewise, a third of the night. Now, in your notes and, and even in the verses there, you can kind of see how this judgment is poured out. So, you know, seven angels, you read, we read about the first four. Basically, in the first one, there's this hailstorm that destroys everything. In the second, uh, the second trumpet is blown, and uh, all the seas become blood. Third angel, rivers and springs of water become bitter. Fourth angel comes, and there's this darkness that begins to cover the land because the sun, moon, and stars just stop working, right? Now, uh, if you compare these judgments with ones that occur later in chapter 16, you're going to see it's basically the same thing. Uh, the earth is, is destroyed uh, through a series of hailstorms and earthquakes. The waters become blood, 
and and then all of and then uh, suddenly the um, the planetary bodies just stop working and it's complete darkness. Okay, now let's let's ask this question: Is this the first time we've seen something like this in the Bible? No. no. Where have we seen things like this before? God is God is actually working out in the future a lot of things in the same way that He's worked them out in the past. Can you think of another time in history? where there were things like hailstorms and water becoming blood and darkness covering the land. Yeah, the plagues, right? So write this in your notes. Where have we seen this before? We saw it at the Exodus. The plagues of hail and water becoming blood and darkness in the land of Egypt as God was pouring out His judgment on His enemies to do what? What was He trying to do? To save His people. To rescue His people, right? Now, was there another time in history? We actually talked about this last week where there at the same time was an earthquake and water mixed with blood and darkness covering the land. At the cross, right? Jesus um, breathes his last. There's an earthquake. The veil in the temple is torn in half. We're told that darkness covered the land. And sure enough, when Jesus bleeds, what's, what's his blood mixed with? With water. Interesting imagery there. So at the Exodus and at the cross, we've seen these things before. And at the cross, just like at the Exodus, Jesus is judging his enemy. He's judging sin in the person of Jesus so that he can save his people from their bondage. And Revelation tells us that in the future, God will rescue his people in ways similar to those past deliverances. The difference is that this time the salvation will be forever. And then the other question we want to know is what will be the result? So look at, look at chapter 16. Look at Revelation 16. And start in verse 10. Here's the result of all of these things. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom, the kingdom of the, the beast, was plunged into what? Darkness. So write that in your notes. The kingdom of the beast will be plunged into darkness. Now think about that. <coughs> darkness itself will be plunged into darkness. Death is defeated. Death is slain. Death is killed. God gives his enemies over to that which they desire. They receive their just reward. Which means that God reserves a judgment of darkness for His enemies. And if His enemies receive darkness, what do you suppose His own people receive? Not darkness, but, but light. So the third stage then is the eternal state of all people. And there's only two options. The eternal state of all people, first of all, is either in everlasting death and darkness. Everlasting death and darkness. So in Revelation 20, at the end of the chapter, we're told uh, in, in verse 14 that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And, and when Matthew, in his gospel, describes this, he talks about God's enemies being cast out into outer darkness. That's how this eternal judgment is described. And this is where this is where this is the reality for all who do not turn from their sins and trust Christ completely. This is the destiny of all people apart from Jesus. 
Jesus paid the penalty for sins on the cross so that you and I don't have to pay that penalty. So, so I'm urging you, if you've not done this before, believe that He's done this for you. Trust Him to rescue you so that this death and darkness will not be yours. Don't be those who do not repent. So the eternal state of all people is either in everlasting death and darkness or in everlasting life and light. That's the other option. Everlasting life and light. That is what is ours if we turn from sin and trust Christ. Read these descriptions with me in Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then if you go to the end of Revelation 21 and verse 22, here's a further description. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, and by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut, and there will be no night there. No night, no more darkness whatsoever. Go to, go to chapter 22, verse 3. He says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's almost like John is saying, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And at the very end of the Narnia story, C.S. Lewis says it this way, at the end of the last battle, Aslan is in front of the children. He says to them, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy says, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. You've sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? And their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. But the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended and this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after... After that, we're so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page 
Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And then, always light and never darkness. Always Christmas and never winter. Would be another way to write that. Let's pray. Father, because of these great promises, these great hopes, we understand that Christmas is not something that we have here momentarily. We have an eternity with you to celebrate your coming to dwell with us forever. Not for a short amount of time, but for eternity. And Lord, we pray for that day to come. We pray, come Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, help us in these days of darkness to live with the hope of eternal light and life to come. And thank you that we can have that hope. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.